Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Living the Dream Douglas. You are? You're, you're living the dream? I'm living the American dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so? I, you, I have a you... roast in the oven. Uh-huh. I have my apron on right now. I have my new Ford Etzel outside. Yeah. And uh, you know, two and a half lovely children. Yeah. And you, you probably arrived uh, on a on a boat as an immigrant and just fell off the boat right into a pile of money, right? Well, I'm second generation. Okay. Right. Yeah. And and hard scrabble worked for it. Really wanted that hard scrabble. You, hard scrabble life. The professional scrabble circuit. No, that's an entirely okay. different podcast you can, it, episode. It's hard to make a, a living on that, but I but it, it does exist and it's fascinating. From what I understand, it's about as lucrative as. Entering into like the the toddler beauty pageant circuit. <laughs> yeah, I think it it maybe is comparable to that, yeah. but uh, but but slightly less crazy. Slightly. I refer to this idea of this 1950s like ideal of the American dream, where you know you had the perfect lawn, you had just bought a house and a car, and everything was okay because you had those things. Right, and and if you weren't happy, it was achievable if you could only work hard enough. To buy these things, it was all about work hard, buy the things that will give you the life that is happiness. But does it really work like that? Does money really buy happiness? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? And it certainly—I I threw this question out on Facebook uh, yesterday. I did a little blog post, and I found that a lot of people just, uh, you know, instantly say, "No, of course it doesn't. Money doesn't buy you happiness," because. Uh, that's become an an increasingly popular uh, little bit of uh, of wisdom to keep around in your head, especially as we live in a world that is so fascinated with the lives of uh, celebrities and the wealthy, and so you know ruled over by by that class of people. It's comforting to remind yourself, oh, they have all this money, they live this grand life, but they're not really happy. And therefore, I can feel a little better about not having what they have. Ironically, I feel like Oprah actually brought this idea to the masses. Yeah. Right. She does a lot of self, you know, introspection and and work with her audience on what is happiness and so on and so forth. So I feel like she seeded this for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. And But it is such a tricky issue because if you hear... Because, because we respond both ways to it, right? Mm-hmm. If on some level you hear a rich person or a celebrity complain about their life, on one level you, you have that voice that says, oh, well, money doesn't buy happiness. There you go. But on the other side, you, there's a voice that you want to say, oh, shut up. You own an airplane. If you own an airplane, you don't have the right to complain about your life. Like we, we kind of, we kind of feel it both ways. Uh, but bound up in that is a little bit of envy. And this idea, again, that if if you just had access to their money, you right. would spend it right. And, yes. and you would do it in ways in which you would be happy. Exactly. I mean, we think that even as we, we, we stare right in the face of studies that say, uh, you know, the people that, that win the lottery um, are, are either, either it doesn't improve their lives or it makes them less happy. We, we always think, but if I won the won the lottery, I'd know how to spend it. I would use it appropriately and actually improve my life. I would be the exception to the rule. So those are the types of things we're going to explore today. But before we do that, we should probably say that when it comes to happiness and wealth, there is a major impact made when you are below the poverty line. 
That's right. Uh, the World Health Organization has called poverty, quote, the world's biggest killer and the greatest cause of ill health and suffering. Because when you look at poverty, uh, living below the poverty line in this world brings increased risk of violence, infectious disease, chronic disease, mental health problems, sleep disorders, and chronic stress. Uh, and in many cases, we're talking about an individual's financial inability to meet their own basic needs or the basic needs of their dependents. Yeah, and when we start talking about basic needs, we're talking about biological needs, yeah. like eating, right? Exactly. Um, these are things that we have to use to survive. So if you can't meet that need, it's terrible, right? Of course, you would be very unhappy. The thing, though, is that once you can meet those basic needs and once you can rise above that poverty level, it may not be like, oh, hey, it's it's smooth sailing from here on out. But the effects of money begin to taper off. And this is actually from a How Stuff Works article that we have on happiness and money. And it says that homeless people in Calcutta, for instance, score a mere 2.9 on a seven point scale of happiness while multimillionaires in the United States rank around 5.8. However, if you look at the Inuits in Greenland and Mazai ranchers Mm -hmm. in Kenya, they are just as happy as those high society Americans scoring around a 5. So again, here's that those effects of money tapering off. Yeah, it seems to be diminishing returns. It's kind of like... uh like when you're when you're really hungry and you uh, you dig into that delicious meal, you know that first bite is amazing, and then as you begin to fill up, it becomes less so. I think I've seen uh, seen studies that say that like the seventh bite, after you take the seventh bite of something, then you're just you're just eating, you're not enjoying the food uh, at all, and you're you're and you're beginning to get even you know even closer to that level where you're not even hungry anymore. It's just pure recreational eating without any actual value to you as an organism. And if you think about it, too, you, your brain really can sustain that anyway, because that first bite is really um, sort of the bells and whistles of the dopamine in yes. your system saying, ooh, a reward. But if every single bite was like that, you would never put your fork down. Yeah. And in this, we're getting into, you know, kind of the complex notion of happiness that we've touched on before. What what is happiness? We're talking in this podcast about about potentially buying happiness. But that in itself is, is elusive. Is a happiness that moment that you bite into that meal is happiness the knowledge that you uh you created the recipe for that meal is 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 happiness a moment in time is it an overarching theme that covers a, a grand uh length of time well and is happiness forkful after forkful really sustainable even if it's been bought on a silver spoon right and yeah. so in order to really get to this answer we have to start looking at meaning versus happiness because they're bound up in each other. There's no way to 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 talk about one without the other really. Right. So happiness we can you know as elusive as the term is, we can say you can still say things like, ah, well this meal makes me happy. Uh this gadget makes me happy. My family makes me happy. Uh this trip makes me happy. Uh, this pill makes me happy. But, uh, can you, can you plug in the word meaning in all of those cases? This gadget gives my life meaning. This pill gives my life meaning. This, uh, my family gives my life meaning. To, to what degree do these uh, statements match up with each term? Yeah, and so you have to start looking at this idea of happiness or well-being. And for some economists, well-being is seen as arising when benefits outweigh cost. For, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they define it as uh, requiring good living conditions and positive relationships. 
Uh, for spiritualists, you would see that it's a pleasurable state that is the sum of the positive and negative thoughts and feelings that arise when we reflect on our lives. Ah, when we reflect on our lives, because that's when the meaning part comes in. Yeah, and and I, th- I think that goes beyond spiritualists, too, and gets into areas of philosophy and even psychology as well. But uh, but yeah, you start thinking it's, it's more about those moments in life when you really reflect and ask yourself, what's the point of all of this? What what's what's the meaning? Why am I here? What am I doing? And and that's where the meaning uh, that's where the the meaning comes into to play, as opposed to the happiness. Unless you're adhering to kind of a hedonistic philosophy, in which case uh, the, the worm kind of uh, uh, turns back on itself. But if you think about it this way, happiness, as we have discussed before, is ephemeral. It's fleeting. It's a moment-to-moment thing. But meaning gives you context. Mm -hmm. It gives you a a sort of richness of that bite of happiness. So I think most people would think that meaning is just nested within happiness, when in fact it is happiness that is nested within meaning. It's really sort of a byproduct of it. Right. Like, for instance, when I I say, name somebody who's led a meaningful life. Like, what are some of the iconic examples Gandhi. that come? Exactly, Gandhi, or you know, or a, or a Mother Teresa type figure. They, these are the the individuals that that come to mind. But you don't necessarily think, oh, Gandhi, he was he was a happy guy. I mean, I don't think of Gandhi as an unhappy guy. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily attach the happiness onto his meaningfulness. You think more uh, more about struggle. You think more about uh, about putting yourself second and putting happiness second to a cause and to the you know, the betterment of the world itself. Although you look at someone like the Dalai Lama and you see perhaps he has both. Yes, indeed. Here's a man that lives a meaningful life uh, and does seem to be rather jolly. Yeah, so keep that example in your mind, guys, as we go through these sort of scales of wealth to happiness and scales of wealth to meaningness. And we're going to do this by taking an example of a study by Shigehiro Oishi who's from the University of Virginia, a psychologist, and Ed Diener, a University of Illinois psychologist. They conducted a study to better understand how wealth would influence both happiness and meaningfulness. And they examined the relationship between a country's wealth and the well-being of its citizens. So we're talking about thousands of people, um, and these people completing an annual Gallup survey uh, in 132 countries. And so they would report how happy they were. And whether or not their, their life had some sort of purpose or meaning. And then they would look at a scale from zero, which would be the worst possible life, to ten, which is the best possible life. And that's where they got masses of data and te- teased out this idea of happiness and wealth. And so in this scale, we would ima- easily imagine that a, a ten would be an, an almost unattainable level of happiness. Like no mortal human could contain that. If you reached a 10, you would sprout golden wings and ascend uh, into the cosmos. Like Oprah. Right, like Oprah. Whereas a zero, you, your life would be so miserable that how could you, you would just pop into non-existence. There'd be no way you could continue because your life would be such um, such such a pool of suffering. So what did they find? Uh, overall, people from wealthier countries were generally happier than those from poorer countries. Now, again, think about the ephemeral effects of happiness, moment to moment, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And to reach an average life satisfaction score of 4 out of 10, people needed to earn about $700 a year. For a score of 5, they needed to earn $3,000 a year. And for a score of 6, they needed to earn an average of $16,000 per year. 
for a seven, it's pretty good on the scale, right? Mm-hmm. They needed to earn an average of $64,000 a year. So, all right, yes, we see that there's an idea of more happiness in wealthier countries here. But what about meaningfulness? Well, and not only, I should say, not only this, the, the wealthy country, but here we see the actual uh, income level uh, influencing happiness. Yeah, Because I guess- it's easy to say, like, okay, a rich country, obviously they're going to, Arguably have, um, have a better support system in place. Mm-hmm. They're going to have better resources for, for everyone. Uh, it's going to be safer. Uh, you know, you can go down the list of all the, the positive benefits there. But, but what, what I like about the study is it also, and what is more problematic about the study, especially to the whole money can't buy you happiness thing, is that it says that you actually see the lineup of, uh, the money that's coming into the life and the happiness enjoyed in that life. Indeed. Right. But it tells a good story of that. So the other story is that they found is that between 95 and 100 percent of the respondents from poverty-stricken Sierra Leone, Togo, Kyrgyzstan, Chad, and Ethiopia reported leading meaningful lives on that scale. Now, only two-thirds of the respondents in wealthy countries like Japan, France, and Spain believed that their lives had meaning. Hmm. So what is happiness without meaning here? Well, I think we can we can probably all point to to moments in our own life where we can say, well, that was a moment that was happy, but was it meaningful? You know, mm-hmm. um, and maybe more than moments, maybe whole decades <laughs> of our lives, we can look back and say, well, I had a lot of fun, but did it mean anything? Um, and, uh, and and not to say that that meaning and uh, and fun, sorry, not to say that meaning and happiness can't line up, but uh, or that they're mutually uh, exclusive. But uh, but you can well imagine someone setting in a you know say a fancy penthouse uh, you know kickback enjoying uh, say some sort of video game on the latest system the largest screen the coolest sound system and uh, is it a meaningful experience though is it something that they can look back that they can have that that moment of reflection and say what is my life about why why do I exist what's the purpose of everything and uh, I would argue that it's it's hard to say that. Enjoying an awesome video game on an awesome couch in front of an awesome television set lines up with that uh, that sort of existential uh, reason to be. Right. And we've talked about this. This is the problem of consciousness. Why are we here? What are we mm-hmm. doing? So the question then becomes, why would people in poverty-stricken countries have more meaning or feel that their lives had more meaning? And Adam Alter, who wrote a New Yorker piece on this, says, perhaps because poverty strips people of happiness in the short term... One of those terms, ding, 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 that mm-hmm. we've been talking so much about. Perhaps because of that, it forces them to take the long view, to focus on the relationships they have with their children, their gods, and their friends, which become more meaningful over time. And indeed, you could you could probably argue that they're 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 forced to depend upon those social structures more. You know, they're they're yeah. less financially self reliant, and therefore, it's more of a a community situation as opposed to the you know the lone individual standing in line to get the latest gadget and then taking it home to enjoy in their uh, in their cavernous den which we'll talk about in a moment but uh, just in case you're wondering if there are any other studies that maybe are more western centric well indeed there are there's one by psychologist Roy Baumeister who we've talked about before in the context of willpower yes all those chocolate cake uh, experiments where you would uh, tempt somebody with a chocolatey treat and see what effect it would have on your your willpower 
Yes, all those uh, interesting experiments where you would uh, you would see to to what extent various uh, stimuli would have on your ability to resist the temptation of delicious chocolatey cake. Yeah, he, as you said before, he's that guy in the street corner with a lab coat and a chocolate cake. Yes. Beware, <laughs> beware of Roy Blaumaster. Um But he and a team of researchers asked 400 Americans between the ages of 18 and 78 about whether they felt happy and or meaningful when it comes to their life. Did they have meaning in their life? And he found that people were happiest when their needs and desires were met in the present, but that this immediate fulfillment was largely irrelevant to meaningfulness and that the respondents derived meaning from considering the whole of their lives, including the past and the future. And happiness was generally a reflection of how they felt in the present alone. So, yes, the happier people, they they were more likely to report that they led easy lives, that they were in good health and to feel good much of the time. They could buy whatever they wanted without any financial strain. Um, but people who felt that their lives were more meaningful, on the other hand, were likelier to have experienced fulfilling social relationships, engaged in acts of charity, taking care of their children, uh, thought about struggles and challenges, challenges, including, you know, the act of prayer in this, uh, as well as other more community-centered activities. So, yes, you have this big study from Shikahara Oishi and Ed Diner, but you also have Baumeister's smaller U.S.-centric one, which is mirroring the same effects of meaningfulness versus happiness. I like that you mentioned struggle earlier, and it brings us back to this idea of of meaningfulness uh, being tied up with the story of our lives and the sort of the story-shaped nature of our own self-awareness. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, you have to you have to place yourself within a story, uh, and think in also about the kind of stories we actually engage with, the kind of stories you would pay to see at the movie theater or read in a book. They're generally the stories of struggle. I mean, it's the basic uh, the basic plot line, the rise and fall. The uh, you don't want to see a movie about uh, about a, a man or a woman who had everything uh, they ever wanted, right? Right. Um, you want to see the, the movie about someone who lost everything and then f- figured out what was important in their life or someone who rose from nothing to, to achieve something. So these are the, the, the archetypes that we have to fit our, our own lives in uh, in order to find meaning. Or right. At least that's my take yeah. on it. I agree because I think we are so much the storytelling brain. That's how, that's how we operate. We have to have that story in order to make sense of our lives and move forward. And I even think about the fictional movie, The Matrix, in oh, which yes. the storyline there was that the alien overlords at some point had tinkered around and made the human lives very easy. They had no challenges. And in essence, they had no meaning. So what happened is that all the humans died off because, of course, they were harnessing their, their body's energy, right? Um, in those little pods. Mm-hmm. And so they had to put into the stories of the humans' lives some sort of challenge, obstacle, in order to get to that idea of why am I here? What What is the point of being alive? Indeed, yeah. So I think that's, that's an excellent example of it, just the idea that, that a, a life without struggle is not really a life. Struggles are the things that d- define our existence, that give us that story and ultimately give us meaning. All right. Uh, on that note, we should probably take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about, uh, like you've got some change burning a hole in your pocket and, and you want to spend it to try to be happier. We'll talk about the ways in which you might be able to do that. All right. We're back. Putting a price tag on happiness. 
All right. So, of course, Forbes has some, some articles on this, right? Because yes. Forbes is very interested in, in economics and um, how to pursue that in, in the best way that you can. And one of the articles talks with Elizabeth Dunn, who is a co-author of the book Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. And she talks about one of the ways that has the most impact with money and happiness is to purchase experiences, not things. Yes, buying an experience as opposed to a material. Instead of simply going and even waiting in line to buy that new gadget at the store, it's about taking a trip uh, to an exciting location, or even you know, not that exciting a location, but but taking a little adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Or going to a, you know a concert, uh, checking out a, a new musical actor, an old favorite, going to a play, that sort of thing. And she cites an August 2014 study called Waiting for Merlot, Anticipatory (laughs) Consumption of Experiential and Material Purchases, which tracked about 100 college students and 2,200 randomly selected adults to see how they felt about material goods and experiences. And they found that participants were excited about both the thing and the experience, but they were overall more positive about the experience Moreover, material purchases were more likely to be tinged with feelings of impatience. So I think you had already mentioned before, like sitting in line for something. Mm-hmm. Here's a good example. You're in line for the newest gadget. Do you feel collaborative and easygoing with your fellow line waiters or do you feel kind of like itchy and competitive? Yeah, uh, I would I would imagine it tends more towards the competitive side. Now, certainly, as we were discussing earlier, uh, really savvy companies uh, such as Apple have tried to make it more of a a, a community, right? A more yeah, of a, more yeah. almost a religion where you're not in line with uh, other consumers uh, with whom you're you know, competing, but rather you're you're gathered with like-minded individuals who are there to to get another slice of the future. Right, because then you can kind of look at it as that line for the experience, right? right. So you're in line for for a you know, a theater ticket or a tour. And all of a sudden you're talking with your fellow line waiters about how cool it's going to be. You're right. Apple has completely hacked into that because now we have people in line for the experience of Apple. And did you know that you can ask Siri her favorite color and she will tell you it's this blue green color that she can't quite articulate. So it's like waiting in line uh, to get into a fish show, talking to your uh, your other uh, your fellow fish fans and discussing uh, you know the the set list at this uh, show that uh, that came through last year, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, at its essence, it's about community and 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 it's a highly social bonding sort of experience. Yeah, and, the, and I think the the imaginative state going into it is key too, because you think about. Uh, you know, when you were looking forward to a new video game coming out or a new gadget, you know, you're, you're reading these articles about it. Uh, you're looking at screenshots. You're looking at, at some footage. But ultimately, you, to your point, you, you just impatiently want it. You're like, I want that yeah. thing in my hand. I want yeah. to, I want it uh, in my video game machine so I can be playing it. Why am I not playing it already? Why do I have to wait a year? <laughs> Whereas, when you're getting excited about a trip, you know, there may be a little impa- impatience. You might be thinking, "I wish my work week were over so I could, you know, actually let the the, the fun times begin." But you get to uh, to involve yourself in the planning of that trip, right? And, mm-hmm. and picking out what you're going to do and daydreaming about the thing you're going to do, kind of like daydreaming about how you're going to spend that lottery money, except it's actually going to happen. Yeah, and you can involve others in that planning too. Exactly, and their experiences. Oh, I went to you know, this beach or that beach or, you know, to 
get excited themselves about your upcoming experience. Right. I mean, yeah, you're it's you're you're engaging yourself with society on on some level. Even if you're only traveling with one person and just encountering, you know, people on the way, uh a trip is an adventure that's going to forge a new story for you. Whereas, you know, a gadget, a video game, uh some sort of material possession, a new coat, those things are Gonna, they may carve a story, but it's a, a much smaller story. Indeed, and uh, Dunn also says that a second category is a, this: the spending on other people is another way to achieve happiness with money. And when I think about this, I just think about this as being a different version of the experience, really. Mm-hmm. But you're you're buying an experience for someone else, or you're creating an experience for someone else, and that's the altruistic. Act again, a community social based act here. Yeah, if nothing else, like bare minimum, you're buying yourself that that uh, that moment where you give something to somebody else, and you get to see the look on their face, hopefully, and you'll you'll get to feel good about yourself. And uh, and if nothing else, you're you're taking your mind off of yourself and putting it onto someone else. You know, you're you're sort of breaking free of the default mode network for just a moment, mm-hmm. and uh, and putting the uh, t- taking the spotlight off of your own story and putting it on another's, or at least having your story meet theirs. Yeah, and there are scads of studies that support this this idea that there's a link between happiness and um, your own ability to provide that gift of happiness to someone. In fact, Dunn, in one of her studies, it was a 2008 study, gave college students either $5 or $20 to spend by the end of the day. Now, half were instructed to buy something for themselves, and then the other half were instructed to buy something for someone else. And what do you think? You know, how did they, they rate their levels of happiness for that day? Well, it turns out that the altruistic uh, endeavor was the one that uh, generated the most happiness. Yes, and they say that that may be boiled down to something called self-determination theory, which states that human well-being depends upon satisfaction of three basic needs, relatedness, competence, and autonomy. So in this circumstance where they were giving away that money or buying something for someone else, it met those three conditions. So we're talking about bonding, um, free choice, and then just having the ability to do it in the first place. And this brings to mind an important uh, point that's brought up in the uh, How Stuff Works article, Can Money Buy Happiness by Jennifer Horton, which is a, uh, a nice uh, examination of some of these same issues. Uh, and this article points out that uh, you, you do see highly successful uh Wealthy individuals who are scoring highly on uh, on the the happiness contentment uh, uh, meter, but a lot of this generally stems from from the success and enjoyment of one's job rather necessarily than the the size of the paycheck. So again, it comes more down to uh, to the uh, the experience and to uh, the and to determinalism as opposed to just a a fat check at the end of the week. Indeed, now. Um, in terms of giving away money or buying experiences or, or even getting a big fat paycheck, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that Dunn says is that you have to restrict access or, or make something special. In other words, buying something for someone every single day could diminish your feelings of happiness, right? It's just sort of, again, that, that analogy of a forkful of cheesecake, you know, right. the first is going to be the best. Yeah. You know, no matter what the fantasy is, no matter what the, the, the dream is, 
if you have enough of it, it's going to get old. It's going to get sick. It's, you're going to adapt to that environment, and you're going to want a different environment. You're going to need something greater and greater to uh, to thrill you or at least uh, satisfy you and give you that feeling that you're leaving, leading this happy life. Which taps into two things here, willpower mm-hmm. and, as you said already, fantasy. And if you think about those two terms side by side and you think about lottery winners, wow, you have a really great discussion or even study about how happiness plays out. Right. Yeah, because suddenly you go from zero to 500, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you suddenly have all of this money to buy the happiness that you've wanted. Yes. And you start spending on things, right? You get that, you get that car that you think you need. You get that uh, house that you think you need. Um, and pretty soon you, you just have to keep buying things to maintain that level of newness and happiness, right? Yeah, and there's this idea that you'll have more choices. Yes, you will, but that doesn't necessarily make someone happier. In fact, we've talked about that before. It's uh, ego depletion in which you have all of these things in front of you and you spend so much mental energy on it that you are depleted for making good decisions in the future. And again, here comes the the short-term, long-term thing because if you are trying to fill that void by buying, 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 you're serving constantly the short term. And that's where you see that lottery winners are something like twice as likely to declare bankruptcy than the general population. And it also just ties back into that old adage, you know, you, you at, at the end of the day, if you, you you're still going to be the same person, right? You're just going to be surrounded by more stuff. Or maybe you'll be in a fancier house, but you still have to look at yourself in the mirror. You still have to ask those questions about meaning. Why am I here? I have a really fancy car that I just bought, but how does that change my story? Yeah, in fact, that gets down to this idea of perhaps all of us are preloaded with a set point of happiness. That can change over time, right? Mm -hmm. I guess if you were to do that in in a way that was really intentional. But if you didn't, there there may be just sort of a set point that we all gravitate to. And again, lottery winners were examined for this. It was a 1978 study by a team of psychologists from, from Northwestern University in the University of Massachusetts, which was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And they found that lottery winners were not significantly happier than control group participants and that patients with spinal cord injuries did not appear nearly as as unhappy as might be expected. Yes, I mean the spinal injury thing comes into play because on some level you could say individuals who sustained a you know a sufficient injury uh, have fewer choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas money seemingly brings more choices. Money money's free speech, right? Mm-hmm. Money is more freedom to do things in the world. And yet it doesn't really pan out that way when you look at these statistics. Yeah, and to further this idea of set point happiness, psychology professor Ulrich Schimack found that once couples married, their life satisfaction measures generally changed in the same direction, suggesting that environmental factors like child's birth or a job loss would affect their well-being. But if you, again, if you take the long-term view of them, he found that their participants' happiness level was relatively stable over a course of 22 years. So again, perhaps the influence of this set point. All right, but at this point, you're probably wondering, well, what can I do? If I have the money to spend and I want happiness, I want meaningfulness, I want all of these things, and I have a little money set aside, how do I spend it? You would go big. You would look for three things. You would you would look for time. You would look for giving, altruism, 
and you would look for experience and we would try to wrap all three of those things up into one thing. Yeah, like an example that comes to mind, and this is not something big on a financial level, but say you're giving a gift to a child. Mm-hmm. You don't just give them a thing as much as they want that thing and would probably be happy to run off into the next room with that thing. But you give them uh, something that you do together. You give them the experience of building said thing or mm-hmm. playing said thing if it's a game, right? And uh, and so you're getting the you're, you're getting that gift giving uh, rush. You are getting the experience of doing something with uh, the with the child, the the socialization, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the story of doing it. Um, uh, all of these things are uh, wound up into one. And you're giving of your own time. Yes, and so, time investment. Yeah, and so what this all underscores is that there is some sort of meaning achieved. As you said, there's a story to go along with this. Perhaps it's this is my grandchild, and I'm and I'm helping to add to you know his or her life in this way. And right. Maybe it's even a life lesson that they want to impart. So you know that's this hopefully a good one, right? Yeah, there's the Fisher Price uh, life lesson series you can get. It's uh, some some of them are pretty rough, but uh, but they're important. But they're all plastic. Yeah. So that's good. Um, yes, I think it just all boils down to the ability to take stock of your life, find meaning, and also be thankful for the things that you do have. Because as we know, just you might get that quick dopamine surge from buying something. But again, that that's ephemeral. It's that's not going to last. Yeah. So I would, especially as we begin to sadly enter into another holiday season, uh, I would advise everyone when you when you add something to that Amazon wish list, when you buy that gift for someone else, or you you know buy something for yourself, think think about it in terms of meaning and story. Like what. What is the what meaning am I adding to my life or someone else's with this purchase? All right. Well, hey, let's. Uh, we've got a little time here. Let's call over the robot and uh, read through some listener mail. All right. This one comes to us from I'm going to say PSK uh, for short. I don't want to butcher your name, so we'll just go with initials. Um, PSK says, "Hey guys, I'm a longtime listener. Love the show. I'm writing to you because I just heard your podcast on the flow state." I'm a practitioner and performer of what are called the flow arts. Basically, it's prop manipulation using poi, hula hoops, contact balls, and a lot of other objects. Too many to name here. The reason we are called flow artists is because the main purpose of our art is less entertainment and more about achieving a flow state. A feeling of perfect synchronicity and awareness with our chosen prop. A way of losing ourselves in our flow. For years, I thought this was something new that people were latching onto. I had no idea there was legitimate research into flow states or that a flow state could could be achieved through other tasks besides prop manipulation. Now that I think of it, though, it makes perfect sense, and I will try to achieve flow more in my daily life. Anyways, thanks for the podcast. It was very informative, even for someone who considers himself well-versed in flow. If you or your audience would like to see some of the things that people are doing through flow, I invite you all to search POI, that's P-O-I, in YouTube, or even visit my own group's YouTube channel, The Way of the Circle. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. All right, so that was awesome. I'm, I love that we have a flow artist among our listeners. Um, you guys are always amazing us with all these different things that you do. Um, I will try to butcher PSK's name. Okay. P. Sinkiru. I think P is the initial. Okay. All right. Yeah, all we had was the, the email address on this one. So. Yeah, we apologize in advance. But anyway, thank you for writing in. Yes, indeed. So, hey, you want to find out more about happiness? Well, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com because we will give it to you. 
um, happiness that is. In fact, uh, visit the landing page for this podcast episode, and we'll include links out to other podcast episodes that deal with happiness and our quest for happiness, as well as links up to blog posts, videos. On the page itself, you'll find links to all of our social media pages. You can go follow those accounts and keep track of what we're up to. And you can also get in touch with us, share your thoughts with us. Maybe you even have an unusual experience that brought you a lot of happiness. It wasn't a trip. It was unexpected. Let us know about that, and you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 